Heavenly Father, we do not deserve to hear your voice because we are rebels against you. We are your enemies. But Lord, through the precious blood of Jesus Christ, we have become your children, your friends, and we are not at war anymore with you. And so we can hear your voice. Lord, we thank you for your voice contained in your word, which is right here before us this morning. But Lord, we do pray that you may help us to understand what you have said. So often our minds are feeble and foolish and we cannot comprehend your word. We need your help and so we ask for it now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I don't usually do the vacuuming anymore at our house. But this week I was home and I said to Jill, oh, would you like me to vacuum? And as I'm vacuuming around, I turn the button on the thing, I noticed that there was chalk stuck in one of the, in the air vent that blows all the hot air out of the vacuum cleaner. And I said to Jill, is this meant to be in here? As though she had put it in. But of course, she said, no, I didn't know that was there. Uh, and this little piece of blue chalk had been stuffed down in the air vent. And I said, well, that shouldn't be the way, um, because, of course, the vacuum cleaner is not meant to overheat. So I thought I'd amuse Joshua, because, of course, he knew the chalk was there. He was pointing at it. Um, and I thought I'd try and take it out. So I open up the vacuum cleaner, and there's a screw there next to the vent. And so I went and got the screwdriver, which makes Joshua very excited whenever I get the toolbox out. And I come over, he's looking, and I go to put the screwdriver into the screw, and I realise it's one of those security screws, it's sort of like um, six points on it rather than the the four uh, Phillips screwdriver, and so the screwdriver just didn't fit. And Joshua was most disappointed because I was putting it there and he was expecting something exciting to happen from this screwdriver being out. And then Jill was casually walking past and said, what about if you press that button there, the plastic button, will that pop open? And so, of course, I did that. And, of course, the piece of chalk fell straight through. So we got the chalk out without needing the screwdriver. But I hate those security screws. One day I will have to go to the hardware store and buy a set of screwdrivers that undoes those very unusually shaped security screws. But that often happens when we use screwdrivers and Allen keys and things like that. We find that they just don't fit. It is not fitting to use that particular screwdriver and it is useless in that case. And we do that with different things in life. We look at whether things fit, whether it makes sense, particularly when it comes to arguments ideas are shared with us and we think about it and we go does it fit does it make sense and we've been working through the book of hebrews for a little while now and up until this point it may have been making quite good sense but last week we touched on an idea and then we'll look at it again this week that the author of hebrews introduces for the first time and that is that jesus died And that just doesn't seem to make sense if you look at the rest of what the author of Hebrews has said up until this point. Because he has been showing that Jesus is supreme. Jesus is the exalted being above everything else. And he's been saying it again and again. And he started with in verse 1 of chapter 1 of Hebrews. If you've got a church pew Bible there, it's page 1184. Chapter 1, verse 1. He starts... From the very beginning to exalt Christ. Verse 1 In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways, but in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. His Son is superior to those prophets. 
whom he appointed heir of all things. The Son is the heir of all things. And through whom he made the universe. The Son made everything. Verse 3, the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. When you look at the Son, you see God. He is indeed marvellous and sustaining all things by his powerful word. He didn't just create the world, but he sustains the world. And after he provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. We see that he's sitting at the right hand of God in heaven and his name is superior to angels. And then he goes on, and we've been looking at that, how the Son is so much greater than angels. And he gives Old Testament proof text and shows it again and again that the Son is indeed incredible. He is the supreme being. But then we saw verse 9 of chapter 2 last week. What did it say there? Verse 9, chapter 2, page 1185. But we see Jesus who made a little lower than angels, now crowned with glory and honour because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. He suffered death. Why? It doesn't make sense. He is the exact representation of God. He is the supreme being. Why would he suffer death? Why would he even come to earth as a man, a little lower than angels? It just doesn't make sense. And lots of people continue to say it doesn't make sense. Particularly that it wasn't just an ordinary death, it was a shameful death at the cross. It was a horrible, excruciating death that he experienced and that just doesn't make sense it doesn't seem fitting with the person that the author of hebrews has been describing up to this point and people have said this that the father sending the son just doesn't make sense there's a liberal theologian who says it's cosmic child abuse what father would abuse his son in that way in sending him to die it just doesn't make sense it is not fitting for Jesus to die the way he did or to even come into the world. So that's what I'm going to look at this morning. Why it is indeed fitting that Jesus should come into the world and die. Why is it fitting that Jesus should come and die? And that is what the author of Hebrews is going to tell us in verse 10. He says that it is fitting and he gives us a couple of reasons in verse 10 of Hebrews chapter 2 as to why it is fitting that this exact representation of God's being would suffer and die. And the first reason why it's fitting is because God said so. That's my first main point this morning. Jesus' suffering is fitting because God said so. And we see that in verse 10. In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. God says it is fitting in verse 10 there. It was fitting that God should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. God says it's okay. God says it's fitting. And so then, of course, it must be fitting. Because who is God? Who is God? What does it say about God there? 
for whom and through whom everything exists. This is not just some created God or some God that humans have made up. This is the God, what does it say? For whom and through whom everything exists. This is the God who made everything, who made the world, who made you, and the one who sustains you. The reason you are taking the breath that you take right now in the pew is because God says you can. If he says, no, you can't anymore, you will stop breathing. He is the one through whom you exist and continue to exist. And he is the one for which you were made. What does it say? For whom and through whom everything exists. The reason you are around is for God's glory. You think you're around for yourself, that your life is your own, and you can do whatever you like with it. No one can tell you what to do. Well, that's not the way it's supposed to be. You were created for God. And so if God, the one who made you and for whom you exist, says it is fitting for Jesus Christ to die, then it must be fitting. Because God defines everything. He is the one who created you. And so it's not you who defines things. It is God. It is very hard to define lots of things in life. People think, what is beauty? What makes something beautiful? What is truth? What is good? What is evil? And people have long debates about what is something, whether something is beautiful or not, whether something is true or not, whether something is good or not, and whether something is evil. We have courts to decide what is right and wrong. But even they get it wrong. Later on, we look back and we go, no, they didn't do the right thing there. Who defines good? Who defines right? Who defines what is wrong? Who defines truth? Who defines beauty? Who defines fitting? It is God. Everything is defined by God. And so if God says it is fitting that Jesus Christ dies, then it must be. Who are you to question God when he says that Jesus Christ dies and it is fitting in his eyes? So that's the first reason. And if that reason wasn't good enough, which it really should be, when God says it is fitting, we should say, Amen. But does it give us any other reasons in the text? Verse 10. We also see that it is fitting that Jesus should suffer because it perfected him. And that's my second main point. Jesus' suffering is fitting because it perfected him. Look at verse 10. In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. Jesus Christ was made perfect through suffering, and so it was fitting for him to suffer then, because it perfected him. Now, of course, this text sends off alarm bells in our heads. For a lot of people, this troubles them quite a lot, because isn't Jesus perfect anyway? Wasn't he perfect when he was on earth before his death? Isn't he the sinless one who never made a mistake, who never had any imperfections in himself? Isn't he the perfect one? Yet here it seems to imply that he was imperfect and then suddenly becomes perfect by his death. 
what is the author of Hebrews saying? Well, the word that is translated make perfect here can also be translated to bring something to completion, to reach a goal. And so it's like when you put the finishing touches on a painting and it's suddenly perfect. It reaches its goal, its purpose has been completed. And that is what happens when Jesus dies. He is perfected in the fact that he does the job that he is supposed to do. He reaches the goal of his life here on earth and he is made perfect. It's kind of like when you claim to have a particular occupation. It's your job to do something and you don't actually be that person, have that occupation until you start to do it. So kids do this all the time. They dress up, don't they? They put on a policeman's hat. They might have a policeman's uniform. They may have a, they may have a gun, whether real or fake. And they pretend that they're a policeman. But they aren't a policeman until they actually start to do the job. They're saying they're a policeman, but they're not until they actually are started to be employed by the state and start to enforce the laws of the land. And so it is with Jesus. He claims to be the Messiah. He claims to be the Christ. That is his job. But it's only his job once he actually accomplishes the job that he, is done, he claims that he is going to do. And that's what perfects him. What is his job? Well, it's the Messiah. And what was the Messiah supposed to do? Well, he was meant to suffer. And it's interesting the way that the Messiah is described there. His job is described there in verse 10. It says, In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author, that's Jesus, of their salvation perfect through suffering. He is the author of their salvation. The word author can also be translated pioneer, as someone who goes ahead, leads the way. And of course, the person who is leading the way is the person who usually suffers the most. If you're going through a jungle, it's the person who has to have the machete and tries to cut through all the twigs and clears away. Or in a military sense, then they have spearhead uh, groups that go ahead and clear the way. And of course, they're the ones that often get killed on the way through. They're clearing away. They're pioneering away. And that's what Jesus is said to be. He's the pioneer. He's the one who goes ahead of the people and leads the way. And so he suffers. And he calls himself the Christ. And the Christ was supposed to suffer. Again and again, it was predicted in the Old Testament that the Messiah would be a suffering Messiah. The one who was to come would suffer. And so to finish his job, he must suffer. We see it in Genesis 3. There, just after the fall, a promise is made that a son of Eve would come who would crush the serpent's head, but also what would happen? His heel would be bruised. He would suffer. Not as much as the serpent. The serpent's head is getting crushed. But his heel, nevertheless, would be bruised. And then we see in the Psalms, predicted, all the Messianic Psalms, again and again, they show that he would suffer. And Isaiah is particularly good at showing that the Messiah, the servant of the Lord, would be one who suffers. 
And so if Jesus is to be the Messiah, then it is fitting, it makes sense, that he would suffer. Otherwise, he is imperfect. He can claim to be the Messiah all he wants. But if he does not suffer, then he is not the Messiah because that is what God had promised would happen to the Messiah again and again in the Old Testament. And so Jesus must fulfill his goal. He must be made perfect through suffering. And so it makes sense. It is fitting that Jesus would be perfected through suffering. Is that the only reason then? Besides uh, that God said it would be fitting? We've got two reasons now. God says it's fitting that Jesus would be perfected through suffering. What's the third reason? why it is fitting in verse 10 that Jesus should suffer. That's my third main point. Jesus' suffering is fitting because of its results. Something is fitting if it produces good results. My screwdriver wouldn't fit into the security screw and didn't then produce the results that I was after. It didn't unwind the screw that I was wanting to unwind. And so it was not fitting. It did not produce the results that it was supposed to produce. What are the results that Jesus is supposed to produce? Well, he's an author of salvation. He's supposed to bring salvation. Did he bring salvation through his suffering? Did he get the result that he was supposed to get? Well, it tells us in verse 10, at the very beginning of the verse, in bringing many sons to glory. It was fitting that God for whom and through whom everything exists should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. Through the suffering of Jesus Christ, what did he bring? Many sons to glory. Those are the results of his suffering. Notice three things about his results. Firstly, many. It's not just one person who was saved through Jesus' death, although that would be marvellous in itself. God did not need to save a single person. Everybody could have been cast into hell as rebels and enemies of God, and it would have been perfectly just for him to do so. If he had just said one person is going to heaven... It would have been a marvellous example of his grace. But God didn't just save one. He saved many. Many, many people through the centuries have been saved, starting from Adam and Eve. The gospel is declared there, and then Abraham. We see the godly line follow through Seth, through Abraham. We see many people through the Old Testament are saved, are brought to glory through Jesus' death. And then in the New Testament and then right through the ages to right now, there are many sons of glory, sons and daughters, I should say, in this room. Right now, because of Jesus' death, they are the results. And it just shows his marvellous grace in doing so. This is often the dilemma, this solves the dilemma that people often have with the idea of predestination. That God would predestine people to be his children. And it seems cruel and harsh that God would do that, that he passes over some and chooses to save others. And they think about the some that are passed over and we think that just sounds harsh. But God didn't need to do any of that. He didn't need to save any. But instead he chooses many to become his children. 
It is marvellous that he predestines any, let alone many, to be a part of his kingdom. First thing we notice about the results, many. What else do we notice? Sons. It's marvellous that the results of Jesus' suffering doesn't just produce friends of God, although that's what we are, but we are his children. He is our father. We are his sons and daughters in the kingdom. That is part of the results of Jesus' suffering. So it is fitting that he should suffer. Marvellous results. He brings many, but we're also God's children. We can call upon him as father. The one that we were rebels against before, we are now his children. And does he bless his children? Yes. The third thing we see about the results is they're brought where? To glory. What is glory? Well, of course, we call heaven glory in some ways, but glory is also being exalted, being honoured, and God does that to us. He honours us as his children and he brings us to glory, to heaven, where there is no more crying, there is no more sickness, there is no more death, there is just prosperity and love and harmony and there is Jesus Christ himself. That is the result of Jesus' suffering. And so indeed it is fitting that Jesus should suffer if those are the results it brings if he brings many sons to glory. And so rather than demeaning Jesus, is what we start to think, he is the exact representation of God's being and he's now suffering, we see through his results that his suffering is when he is being glorified. It is when he is being honoured because of the willingness that he went to the cross, but the results that he brings as well. He is exalted to the right hand in heaven because of his suffering. He is our hero, the one who has paid the price for us and saved us from eternal damnation in hell. Just like we have heroes today, if you go into a burning building and save a little baby that's crying in a cot, and you come out and people notice that you do it, what do they do? They recommend you for a medal. They want to give you honour and glory for what you have done. And so Jesus' suffering, instead of belittling him, ends up glorifying him, showing that it is indeed fitting that he should suffer. So what about you? Do you consider that it was fitting that Jesus should suffer? Or does it still trouble you? Do you think that there is a better way for God to deal with the problem of sin than that Jesus should suffer. People do. False religions teach it all the time. And the most common way that people will say that there is a better way of dealing with sin is by good works religion. That you do a good work and it will make up for the sin that you have committed. That is a much better way than having God come to earth, live as a man, and die a shameful death on a cross. It is much better that it's about me and my good works. Every time I do a bad work, I do a good work, it makes up for it. And so this is what other religions teach. Islam teaches it, Buddhism teaches it, Hinduism teaches it, Roman Catholicism teaches it. They say a lot of things right about Jesus and about the Trinity, but they teach that if you do something wrong, 
It is not fitting simply for Jesus to suffer and die. No, you must also do good works to make up for the bad works that you have done. Mormonism teaches it, and a lot of the Christian cults teach it uh, as well. Freemasonry, Jehovah's Witnesses, they come around to your door knocking. They're trying to get you to start doing good works to make up for your bad works because Jesus' death at the cross is not fitting in their eyes. It is not fitting that that should make up for your sins. But what is the problem with good works religion? Is it fitting? Does it make sense? It seems to. We think, oh yes, if I do something wrong, I do something right, it'll make up for it. But it doesn't make sense because you're supposed to be good all the time. When you do a bad work, a good work doesn't make up for it because you're supposed to be good all the time. It's kind of like children that want to be rewarded for every time they do something right. It's not, that's, they're supposed to be good all the time, children are. They're not supposed to be getting a reward for getting up on time. They're not supposed to be rewarded for dressing themselves, for going to the bathroom. They're not supposed to be rewarded for brushing their teeth. No, that's what they're supposed to do. They can't say, I did something wrong earlier, but I'll brush my teeth tonight and that'll make up for it. No. They're supposed to brush their teeth. Brushing their teeth doesn't make up for doing something naughty earlier in the day. And it's the same with us. We're supposed to be good all the time. And so when you do one thing wrong, you have sinned and you're out of right relationship with God. And no amount of good works that you're supposed to do anyway will make up for that bad work because you're supposed to be good constantly. And so it doesn't fit. It doesn't make sense. But false religions will continue to hammer it and tell you that you must be good and Jesus' death is not fitting way to deal with sin. Instead, you must be good and make up for your sins. Another way that people suggest is a better way is that God should just forgive. God is up there. He's got lots of mercy, lots of grace. He should just forgive us for when we do wrong things. And someone, one liberal theologian says, God should forgive for that is his job. It shouldn't be about whether I've done good works or bad works. It should be that just God forgives me for what I do that is wrong. But you know what that makes God? It might be gracious, might be merciful God, but it makes him unjust. He is not a just God then. He is letting people go scot-free all the time for doing the wrong thing. And who wants a God like that running the universe? Who wants an unjust God letting people go scot-free all the time? You might think it's okay for you and your bad works, your sins, but surely you don't think it's right that the people responsible for the killing fields in Cambodia are just simply forgiven for what they do. That Hitler, for all that he did, is just let go free. You want justice. You want a just God running the world. And so it simply doesn't fit to say the better way to deal with sin, God, is just to forgive and forget, to let it go. Because as soon as you say that, you're wanting an unjust God in charge of the world. Might be okay for you, but you surely don't want it for others. You want people to pay, particularly for gross, serious, horrible crimes, 
You want people to pay. You don't want an unjust God looking after the world. So they're two of the most common reasons, I think, that people say it is a better way to deal with sin. Maybe you can think of another way. If that's the case, if you can think of a better way than Jesus dying, than good works, than God just keep forgiving, do you realise what you're doing? How audacious you are? The audacity that you have to say to God, I think there is a better way. Because that's what you're saying. What was my first reason for why it is fitting that Jesus should suffer? Because God says so. The God for whom and through whom everything exists says so. Do you realise what you're saying when you say there's a better way than Jesus dying? You're saying you should be running the universe. You should be God because you know better than God. You know a better way. Do you realise what you are doing? I beg of you, don't do it. Accept God's way. When he says it is fitting, simply accept it as fitting. Don't be so audacious to say there is a better way. Because if you do, God says it is also fitting that you remain in your sins and one day you will be punished eternally for them. And you can be there in hell suffering and saying this is not right for the rest of eternity, but it will still be right because God says it is right. It is fitting and just what he is doing. I encourage you, accept it as fitting right now. How do you accept Jesus' death as fitting? You repent of your sins, you say you've done the wrong thing, and you trust that his death was for you. You pray to God and say, Lord, may Jesus' death be for me. I trust that he died for me. All you need to do, believe that it is so, that it is fitting that Jesus Christ should suffer for you. And then it is that you're one of these many sons brought to glory, maybe a daughter brought to glory, if you accept it by repentance and faith. If you are a Christian and you claim that it is fitting, do you continue to do so? It's very easy to slip back into good works righteousness because that's what we're all wired to think. If I am good, I will be okay. No, it's not. The only fitting way of dealing with sin is Jesus Christ. We start to think, I serve at church, I read my Bible, I pray, so God, deserve, I deserve to get into heaven. No, you don't deserve to get into heaven except through Jesus Christ. That is the only fitting way of dealing with sin. Do you continue to affirm it is fitting? And do you continue to affirm it is fitting for those around you who are not Christians? Or do you let the non-Christians in your life continue to think it is fitting to deal with sin another way, either through good works, through God just forgiving them? Do you let them think that? Or do you affirm it again and again with them that they are on the wrong path, that their sins have not been dealt with if they have not been dealt with Jesus Christ, that there is only one way of dealing with sin that is fitting, and that is through repentance and faith in Jesus' death for them. Do you do that?
Or do you let them think that there are other ways and never share the gospel with them? Let's speak with our God now. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you are there and you are not silent. And you have told us what is fitting, what is truth, what is right and what is wrong. And you have told us that the only fitting way of dealing with sin is through Jesus Christ and his death. Lord, our minds can struggle to understand it because he is God and he came and became man and lived on the earth and then died a shameful death. And we think that just does not make sense. But Lord, it does make sense because you have said so, because Jesus fulfills his job and is perfected by it. And we see the results of many sons brought to glory. Lord, we pray that we may affirm that it is fitting that Jesus should die for our sins again and again. And Lord, we pray for anyone here this morning who has never affirmed it. We pray that they may do so right now, that they may repent of their sins and believe that Jesus died for them and their sins have been paid for. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.